Alberto Manguel is a writer, translator, editor, and critic, but would rather define himself as a reader and a lover of books. Born in Buenos Aires, he has since resided in Israel, Argentina, Europe, the South Pacific, Canada, and most recently New York. He was the director of the National Library of Argentina from 2016 to 2018. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. We're here to talk about your most recent book, Packing My Library, An Elegy and Ten Digressions. You start off in France, where you acquired a beautiful ancient barn to house your thirty to 40,000 books. Could you describe that barn for us, please? We were looking for a place to house the library. We started looking in Canada, but um, in a city, um, a property as large as that is inconceivably expensive. And we couldn't live out in the country because I don't drive. So we started looking in France where we had lived before. And then uh, I was invited to uh, Poitiers to give uh, a talk and I discovered uh, an area uh, that I loved um, where the real estate was cheap and has beautiful Romanesque architecture. So we were offered castles and manors and mills and what have you, and ambitiously I said you wouldn't have a monastery. And the real estate agent said, well, we don't have a monastery right now, but we have a presbytery, a manse. And he took us to see it, and I fell in love with the place. It was a, a, a building that had begun in, in the 13th century. It was attached to uh, 11th, 12th century church. We had the stained glass windows uh, overlooking the garden. It had a huge garden, and had an orchard, and, and the barn. It was a, a stone barn that had been built around um, 1400 and part of it had been demolished over the years but the stones were still there. So an architect friend who lived in the village castle uh, supervised the construction and and um, we had an extraordinary place to lodge the library. It, it, it became iconic um, uh, there were uh, documentaries made about it, and, and was it your dream fulfilled, or that too it big was a... more than my dream? I I always dreamt of having all my different libraries collected in one place, mm. but I imagined a normal space like a storage room with shelves, and this was a beautiful stone building with a tower at each end and uh, wooden beams. Sounds like Montaigne's Tower. Well, Montaigne's Tower was circular Mm. and it was uh, just a tower. We had this beautiful rectangle and um, two towers. I had my office uh, in in one and my partner had his office in, in his and um, uh, 
I, I spent most of my time there reading in the library itself, uh, which was the main building, and working in my tower. And it was paradise, but it's in the nature of paradise that you lose it. That's how you know it's paradise. You mentioned that the, the most valuable books to you were the ones that had private association, that were private association copies. Quite. I don't have enough money to be a bibliophile. <laughs> you don't need a lot of money to be a bibliophile. Well, you do in if you want to be a professional bibliophile. Um, you can't buy a Gutenberg library on what you earn as a freelance writer. But I had several quite valuable books in the library, but the ones that I cared most for um, were the ones that were uh, association copies for very private reasons. The the copy of Stokey and Company, Kipling's stories that Borges gave me when I left Argentina as an adolescent after reading for him for several years. Money what did he say in it? Anything in particular? Nothing. No, he didn't just write signed it. it. No, he didn't. No. It, I know that it's the copy that yes. he gave me, but, yes. which he read in his adolescence. And then there was the, a copy of Marie Chapdelaine, the first edition, mm -hmm. that was given to me when I became a Canadian citizen, mm. and which uh, for me is, is emblematic of, of this beloved country because it was this uh, Quebecois novel written by a Frenchman, read by Timothy Eaton um, yeah. in a ho the Savoy Hotel, and uh, only read halfway through. So <laughs> it really indicates, for me, the relationship between these two cultures in Canada. Did you have, there's an early Blake translation, and then there's another one that Thoreau MacDonald illustrated. There's no illustrations, there's no woodcuts. It, 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 it was the first French edition. Of course, yes. because you speak three or four different languages, right? Five, yes. Five, yeah. Uh, and Timothy Eaton was trying to read it in the original French okay. that I find quite moving. Yeah, and the, the uh, sections of the library were determined by a language. Yes, um, because it was a private library, I could arrange the books in any way I wanted. So the, the, the major divisions were by the language in which the book was originally written. So if I had a German translation of Flaubert, it would still be in the French language section. But there were uh, dozens of exceptions. I had all my books of theology um, separate, my books on the Koran. Uh, Dante occupied a different section. Detective novels had a whole room. It was called the murder room in the house, <laughs> and so on. You, you collected uh, detective novels, but not very many spy stories. I don't like spy stories, with, with, with few exceptions. I love the spy who came in from the cold. I think it, uh, it is a, a, a great novel about the lack of morals of our time. But uh, otherwise, I like the detective novel for the pure puzzle. I like yeah. the novels of the 30s, uh, and, and then some uh, writers of, 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 of later years, like Reginald Hill or uh, James McClure. Uh, I think they are great novelists and also great puzzle makers.
Borges, of course, was a great fan of the detective novel. He was, and um, he introduced the genre into the Spanish language. Uh, he created with his friend Bioy Casares a series called The Seventh Circle, uh, referring to Dante's circles, which is a circle of the murderers. And um, it became hugely successful in the Spanish language and it published uh, great detective story writers such as uh, John Dixon Carr and Margaret Millar, but also um, uh, classics like Dickens' uh, The Mystery of Edwin Drood and uh, a novel by Chekhov, which can be read as a detective novel, and uh, The Moonstone, Wilkie Collins, and so on. And he inspired uh, several generations of Spanish language writers. Uh, as you know, um, the, the, the detective novel genre has become a literary genre in, in Argentina, and uh, some of the, the best Spanish language writers, I think in, in everywhere in the world, have taken the uh, the detective novel as the, the, the basic structure of, of, of their fiction, mm -hmm. and that is all thanks to Borges. Yeah, in fact, after we uh, talk, I'm going to be meeting with uh, Claudia... Pinheiro. Yeah. Yes, of course, yes. And, and, and you see, well, what uh, Borges helped writers recognize is that um, much of the essential stories of our different literatures have a detective novel structure. I uh, was amused to discover that when Gallimard's detective series, La Collection Noire, uh, celebrated its hundredth title, its hundredth title was Oedipus Rex, which is mm -hmm. a detective novel. Yeah, yeah, quite a, quite a horrific twist. Oh yes. Yeah, it's interesting you should mention Borges as, as uh, championing the detective novel, which relies on logic as much as anything. Quite. And yet he was also responsible, or at least some people have suggested, that he was one of the early uh, champions, again, of this mystical uh, approach to, to writing where fantasy comes in and it's it's not rejected by the logic. I think that an important distinction has to be made and it's easier to make it in English than in Spanish. In English you have a distinction between the fantastic and the supernatural, the uncanny, the weird. Borges was interested in those uh, uh, latter categories. He was interested in uh, the uh, uncanny breaking into reality, showing us that the life that we see as normal, the quotidian in, in the universe, um, has a, a side that cannot be explained, what someone called deference to the mystery. Um, it's not about prancing unicorns and fire-breathing dragons, but instead it's something that happens and that cannot be fully explained by 
uh, as Borges says, the word chance or um, conventional explanations such as he was mad, it was all a dream, etc., etc. Yeah, um, that's a cop out, really. Especially it's a cop out, yeah. and the reader in those stories knows that there is something else. Um, Borges was interested in that, and uh, his stories are always logical, and they don't allow for. Uh, the appearance of uh, fairies or goblins or that sort of thing. He wasn't interested in that. He loathed talking. Yeah. While he had a great admiration for uh, Anglo-Saxon literature. But there is a much more of an appetite for the kind of weird and explicable in South American literature. Oh, and, yes. and the readers are, are more apt to uh, suspend their disbelief. Uh, yes, I, I, I think that because the history of the countries of Latin America, very different histories and um, that evolve in different ways of, of telling the stories, have... Uh, all a clear perception of the unexpected constantly happening. Mm. A, a rational mind cannot look at uh, uh, Argentinian politics or Venezuelan politics and pretend to understand what is happening. And that creates an interest not in what I would call the superficial fantasy, things that Garcia Marquez describes of uh, somebody breeding butterflies in her mouth or mm -hmm. uh, the river turning red or so on, but um, a, a metaphysical, philosophical mystery, an existential mystery. And so these profound questions uh, appear in Latin American fiction uh, always. Curiously, not in, in the literature of, of Spain, but in the literature of the South American countries, whether it's the Cuban Virgilio Piñera, whether it is the Peruvian Arguedas, whether it is the Uruguay and Feliberto Hernández, in Argentina, Cortázar, Bioy, and Borges, and Silvino Campo, and so on. Mm. Um, they were all interested in um, what happens when uh, documentary reality shows its cracks. What do you see through those cracks? Well, you mentioned uh, psychology, and there's a there seems to be quite an emphasis on that in in uh, in the books that are written by, not particularly in, Argentinian. Not in the case of Borges. No, uh, but uh, psychology what? has contaminated the Argentinian mental landscape um, because it has become the most common profession. There is no one in Buenos Aires <laughs> who right. doesn't see a psychoanalyst or is psych is a psychoanalyst. Yes. Borges derided that, he made fun of Freud, um, and he, he was, had, interest, uh, had an interest in, in, in the psychology of Jung and Jung's ideas, but Borges uh, very clearly states um, in the preface to one of his collections of fiction that he says these stories are not, don't intend to be psychological. Psychology 
uh, uh, what we call psychological take on, on fiction appears in, in many writers, but I, I wouldn't say that with with certain exceptions like Jorge Volpi in, in Mexico or even uh, uh, Claudia Pinheiro in Argentina, um, with those exceptions psychology is not at the forefront of fiction. Okay. I was just amused to learn that uh, in Buenos Aires, there, there's more bookstores per capita in the world, the most bookstores per capita yeah. in the world, and the most uh, psychiatrists. Yes, I, I, I think um, that the bookstores counteract the noxious effects <laughs> of uh, Freudian <laughs> and Lacanian psychoanalysts. I was uh, amused to, to read that you kept an ample supply of bad books in case you needed examples of mm -hmm. the same in your library. Well, uh, the policy in the library was not to let any book go. Any book that came into the library stayed, with one exception that I would talk about. So I have in the library, the collection still exists, even if it's in boxes. In uh, Montreal uh, here? Right? In Montreal, yeah. yes. Yeah. Examples of, of, of bad books. Um, since I write about writing and reading, I need examples of <laughs> bad books. Yes. Shortly after that, that observation, you say, an obsession is a pleasure that has attained the status of an idea. That's yeah, a quote, yes. Yeah. Who, do you remember who said that? No. Do you remember, do, do you have any idea what exactly they're talking about? Yes, of course, yes. When you become uh, obsessed with something, that obsession becomes part of your taste, of your way of thinking, modifies and, and, and colors uh, your opinions about almost anything. So I am very aware that since my obsession are books, I see books everywhere because I look for books everywhere. Yeah. So whenever I'm traveling, I know that I can leave with an empty suitcase, but come back with a suitcase full of books, if not two. Mm -hmm. I've, and, had to, I've actually yeah. had to empty out my suitcases because I've been too heavy at the airport. Quite. So, yeah. yeah. So yes, the, the obsession takes over, but I think it is health, a healthy obsession. Valérie Larbeau called it the unpunished vice. Books were part of who I was. They still are. A library is an autobiography. I can tell my life through the books that I have read and the books that I have collected. Um, for somebody who loves reading and who has discovered the world uh, through books, books are the incarnation of, of yourself. I find myself uh, represented and exposed in, in books, even those I haven't read. So when I lost my library, it was as if somebody had amputated an arm and a leg mm. and torn my tongue out and um, made me blind. You didn't lose it, you just had to store it. But you lost the physical... What? Yeah, the feeling, the feeling is like that of having phantom limbs. They are not there, but I feel them. 
Mm -hmm. and I think about them every moment of the day and when I'm working I reach out to a shelf that is no longer there and try to embrace the ghosts as Dante does when he sees his friend Casella on the shore of purgatory. Um, you hug something that is not there. Yeah. I have books in storage and I'll be thinking about a topic or something will come up and I'll be upset because mm. I can't go and reach to the right. book. I, fortunately, my memory is quite good for books, not for anything else. Uh -huh. So I, I remember uh, books that I have read. And so now, for the past um, five years, I've been writing out of the library in my mind Sometimes I have to check some references in, in a public library, but mostly I write with what I remember, and I'm very surprised to see how much I remember. So it, it's, it, it's still there. That's what they were concerned about when, the, uh, when writing was invented, which our memories would go to. Yeah, that's the, the myth that Plato tells in, uh, through um, Socrates when uh, the Egyptian God Thoth uh, offers the gift of writing to the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh yeah. says, well, I don't want it because we will lose our memory that way. Yeah. I, I think there's something true in that because we rely on, on these different instruments that our technologies produce as uh, an extension of our uh, uh, capabilities, but at the same time um, they can uh, replace uh, those capabilities and the muscle atrophies as uh, we are seeing now with the electronic technology where um, their movements to stop the teaching of handwriting in schools and teach uh, mathematics in schools since the machine can uh, do that um, without understanding that um, the machines can do that because we can do that. It's a way of, of uh, helping us and freeing up time for more creative activities, but that without those capabilities, without those muscles, um, we will uh, no longer be able to uh, think imaginatively. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening politically around the world is a consequence of that reliance on the instrument and the shedding of responsibilities and obligations towards those activities. Yeah, Samuel Johnson talked about two types of knowledge, the stuff that's in your head and you knowing where to get that knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And the latter is, seems to be Absolutely. Expanded. Seneca said it very briefly, um, the accumulation of knowledge is not knowledge. There is also always an active component of, of, of these abstract notions, uh, knowledge, justice, and so on. Um, they can exist, but what matters is the possibility of you accessing them and knowing how to access them. You mentioned libraries a moment ago. Uh, I like what you say about the fact that you you like to write in the margins of books. You mm -hmm. like to 
own the books. You don't like to wait for books. Yes. No, I... <laughs> that I, explains I, I the kind of the collector, the acquisitive... Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I have a, a, a very physical relationship with my books. So I always write in my books. I always put papers and notes in the books. And I need to own the books. So I love public libraries, but <laughs> I, I can't uh, read comfortably in a public library because I want to take the book home with me. Yes. I, I, I don't like one-night stands. <laughs> yeah, they're not that fulfilling, are they? Yeah, I want materiality, the solid presence of books. Yes. Yeah, um, there's nothing against uh, reading on a screen. Um, I'm, I'm not a technophobe. Uh, it's just a question of private pleasure. I, I, I like the uh, material uh, presence of, of the books in my library. Uh, I like to feel surrounded by those books. Even if I know that many of them I won't read, I have opened all the books in my library. I've opened those 35,000, 40,000 books. Yeah. Obviously, I haven't read them all from the first to the last page. But books are like that. I mean, they are not all meant to be read by every reader. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily meant to be read all the way through. Quite. You can dip in and out, and yes. uh, if, yes. it's not, if it's boring, then why are you going to waste your time with it? Yes, or, or for many other reasons. Um, I don't think we should ever read because we feel obliged to read. Mm -hmm. Borges said that reading cannot be obligatory because happiness cannot be obligatory. Well, and again, I'm a fan of Johnson's. Uh, he said something along the lines of, uh, you, you, you shouldn't force yourself to read anything. No, quite. You should, uh, you should follow your own inclination. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what he did himself. Petr you quote Petrarch as saying, I feel that I never have enough books. <laughs> you feel that way? Oh yes, of course, of course, of course. Uh, but then a, a library can be defined as the space that's always too small for the books that are allotted to it. So it, it, it's an endless quest, but I like endless quests. Mm -hmm. Well, it keeps you living, keeps you wanting to stay alive. Yeah, yeah. I don't like the light at the end of the tunnel. I like the tunnel. Uh, this is a quote that came shortly after Petrarch. He said, we exist only when we interact with someone else. Yeah. The search for others establishes our own identity. Mm. So how come you're spending so much time with books instead of people? But books are the others. Books are the experience of others. Books are the voice of others. Quevedo, they don't talk back, though. They talk back. Uh, absolutely, they talk back. Cavido called that conversations with the dead, and the dead talk yeah. back to you. Um, I can be reading Jane Eyre and then have an opinion on something, and then I find uh, a response to my opinion in, in Jane Eyre. Um, I, yeah, but I, if you've got a question, if you've got a question about the book, mm -hmm. you can read it as many times as you want. It, and maybe your own mind will come up with a new interpretation, mm -hmm. but it's not going to talk back to you with an answer that you want. I, well, 
first of all, I, I don't read to find answers. I find to read to find better questions. And those questions always appear in the books that I love. I, I have never mm -hmm. finished reading The Divine Comedy, if, even if I've read it now, I don't know, 200 times, or Quixote or King Lear. There's always something more uh, that the, the book tells me. Um, and uh, that doesn't happen when I talk to, to friends, to people. Um, people change their minds and say different things and can come up with new ideas. Uh, but a, a, a book that touches us in, in depth, that becomes essential for us, with the same words, keeps digging and digging and going deeper and deeper and revealing more to us that we never knew was there, mm. even with the same words. Yeah, you're in touch with the greater intelligence. Yes, with the memory of humankind, with the experience of time and uh, layers and layers of generations of readers. I, I find it miraculous uh, that the human species has been able to develop its imagination into the act of narration and those narrations, those, those stories can be so endlessly enriching. So I take it you don't agree with Berkeley when he says to be is to be perceived. But yes, um, to be is to be perceived, but it's per being perceived by the books. Uh, my books know that I'm there and establish a communication with me that never ends. And the book, the text, exists because I perceive it, because I read it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's mutually beneficial, the act of reading. I, I help the books achieve immortality, and the books help me understand myself. I can tell you've done a bit of thinking about this. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's been 71 years. <laughs> Yeah, I love this as well. You you, uh, you love public libraries, as you've said. Mm. The first place you visit when you uh, go to a new city is a is a public library, Quite. a city that you don't know. But you can only work happily in your own private library with yes. your own books. Yes. Yes. I, I'm I'm also a, a, a fetishist. I need my desk to be laid out in a certain way and things arranged in a certain way and only when that happens that that first part of the ritual I can start <laughs> to work. Right. You quote uh, Walter Benjamin uh, uh, who says that a, a, a collector is uh, pulled uh, between the poles of disorder and order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, you want to order your collection so that it acquires a semantic sense, um, but at the same time, you keep pulling it apart because you want certain individual objects or books, you want to add to that. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a, a tension between the impulse towards chaos and the impulse towards order in every collector. Yeah. 
Well, and, and when you've got a collection, there's all sorts of little arteries that you can kind of funnel Absolutely. off. Absolutely, yes, uh, yes. You, you, you keep uh, diverting. Mm -hmm. Of course, he, uh, he had uh, uh, the famous um, essay about unpacking his books. Yeah, which came because he had to move, he had divorced, and so his books accompanied him into a new space. Mm -hmm. And um, I called my book Unpacking My Library because of Benjamin's essay, because I thought this is the contrary impulse. Um, unpacking is... Uh, you called yours Packing My Library. Packing yeah. My Library, yeah. and his was Unpacking My Library. Yeah. And when he unpacked his library, he was given giving the books a new life. Mm -hmm. And I packing my library, I felt that I was burying them prematurely. Yeah, you talk about playing a film backwards, mm -hmm. voluntarily forgetting. Yeah. Whereas uh, unpacking is like a rebirth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You bring them to light. Yeah. And uh, unpacking stimulates images and memories, but not thought. Um, yes, it, I think it doesn't give you time to do much thinking because it's all present. Yeah. Uh, while when um, you are packing, because you're putting those books away, uh, you're thinking about them and the associations you make about the remembered readings are your own and they elicit new thoughts. It's um, what happens at a funeral. If you, you have a friend that you dearly love during the conversations, there can be an activity mm. around what happens in the moment. But once the friend is dead, once the friend is, is buried, then uh, the friend will live in your um, thoughts, in your memories. Uh, you have to actively bring that person, that book back. Yeah, speaking of which, you talk about uh, um, packing your books up as a premature burial. I guess the reason that you packed up your books and left was a sordid bureaucracy. Yeah, um, one doesn't have to go into the details, but um, uh, I was very happy for 15 years in this place in France, and I, I, I really thought that I would die there, I would uh, be carried out, I wouldn't leave the place. Yeah. But uh, bureaucracy happened, which is the, the curse of every one of our societies, this uh, obligation to uh, waste your time in paperwork, in uh, following senseless rules that are supposed to order society, but instead complicate it. My business is not to fill in forms. My business is not to uh, uh, indulge in paperwork. My business is, is something else, and you shouldn't ask uh, mason, a carpenter, a brain surgeon, a cook, to spend time with these things. If society needs them, society should find a way of developing it uh, automatically 
we are, uh, we've been almost for a hundred years now in the electronic age, how is it possible that we still have to spend all this time with idiotic forms? And I got fed up with it and it became so uh, impossible um, that we decided to leave. I was offered uh, a teaching position at Princeton and, and, and at Columbia and so we left for New York and uh, life went on but my books were buried. Yeah, I, I, uh, one of the images that I love is you talk about taking a coffee out uh, in the morning and, mm -hmm. uh, and just sitting there in the sunshine. And yeah, um, that was the my ritual. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a wonderful dog, and I would get up very early in the morning and wake up at five, five thirty, and sort of wander half asleep into the kitchen, make myself a tea. The dog would come with me. I would go out into the garden and sit on the bench and see the sunrise above the um, fruit trees at the end of the garden. And the only sound was that of the birds wake, wake, waking up. Um, that was bliss, that was paradise. Yeah, it's tough to leave that. Yes, it's yeah. as if you had uh, an arm cut off. Yeah. Uh, having lost his books as objects, Don Quixote rebuilds his library in his mind mm. and finds in the remembered pages the source of renewed strength. Yes, it's it's interesting. I didn't realize we were talking about um, when the book talks back to you and you discover um, more questions that you hadn't seen. I have read Don Quixote dozens of times, mm -hmm. and I had never remarked on this curious thing that once the um, uh, his uh, niece and the governess tell him that a sorcerer came at night and made the library disappear, they, they walled it in and burned many of the books. Um, Don Quixote doesn't say anything. He goes into his room for three days and then when he emerges he goes on his first adventure with Sancho Panza and never picks up a book again. His ethics, his mission in life as Don Quixote, he becomes Don Quixote because of his readings. But once his library disappears, he decides to act in the world and carry his, the memory of his readings, uh, his, the, the ethics of chivalry in mm. his mind. And I felt something similar happened to me when I packed the books up. I went to New York and then was offered the post of director of the National Library of Argentina and I thought well now I have to enter the kitchen or go out into the world as Don Quixote did and, and put into practice what my books have taught me but I don't have those books anymore. So that's what happened. Um, <laughs> in a way it's salutary but um, uh, I still regret having to have been forced to do it. The building, the National Library of uh, Argentina, Borges said it looked like a hideous sewing machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a horrible building. It, it was lodged in a beautiful 19th century palazzo and then it moved for reasons of space to 
this atrocious, brutalist building built by Clorindo Testa, a man who said that his mission in life was to redeem ugliness, and he certainly succeeded <laughs> as far as the library is concerned. And it's built by a person who doesn't know what a library is or should be, doesn't know how you use books, because most of the library, this tower, has the feeling of a dungeon, very <laughs> low ceilings, ugly cement. It's, there are places where you want to commit suicide. Only the reading rooms on the fifth and sixth floor with, with a view to the river have a certain charm. But even there, he didn't care uh, about how to wash the windows. So the windows are grimy and there's no way of cleaning it except paying a fortune to uh, mountain climbers who can come and, and do the job um, from time to time. But uh, because the library doesn't have the budget for it, the windows are grimy, so you yeah. see through a glass darkly. Yeah, when I was there recently, the place looked kind of shabby and un, you know unkempt. It is. And it is. It yeah. Is. But then the, the the Argentinian government doesn't care a fig for culture, so yeah, if it crumbled tomorrow, they wouldn't shed a single tear. On page 129 of Packing My Library, speaking of the role of a national library, you say, why is it in most of our societies citizens lack an effective political voice? Citizens must react to injustice by turning a blind eye mm -hmm. or by committing violence. Mm. Well, that's, that, that question remains, and it's a question that's asked throughout literature, of course. How do you react to Richard III? How do you react to tyrant banderas of Clan? How do you react to, uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the citizens complain about the evil king who has to learn empathy. Mm. Um, well, Macbeth killing the king. Absolutely. So, I think a national library has a role to fulfill in that sense. It can educate its citizens in civic duties. It can be a place where the evidence of the history of the society can be exposed and people can come and, and check documents and find out what they are about. Uh, but that role has to be actively encouraged and in Argentina it is not. In, in very few societies it, it is because it makes governments uncomfortable to have citizens who can think and who can ask intelligent questions. We need that more now than ever in Absolutely. democracies, in but Western look what, democracies. Look what happened in, in Canada. Canada, with the, the best intentions as an, an example for the world, Trudeau's government puts the people representing minorities in place and these people react without any sense of their political responsibility. The Minister of Justice, the indigenous woman who was named uh, to that post because of, of Trudeau's policies, turned against him without understanding 
that in the conservative government she wouldn't be allowed to clean the doorstep and she is committing social suicide by taking this righteous position well I will not allow the question of infringement of power to arise well then don't go into politics don't go into politics if, if, if you want to preserve uh, uh, a virginal purity of the uh, untouched maiden mind then go get yourself into a nunnery uh, don't become minister of justice and she will ruin the country for all of us now because uh, she undermines Trudeau's policies and will get uh, a conservative government who will lower its pants for Trump. I disagree. I think she showed principle. You can show principle together with responsibility. She didn't kowtow to cronyism. It wasn't cronyism. It was a question, a political question of saying can we afford to lose 10,000 jobs in Quebec? Trudeau didn't say to her, you have to sweep this under the carpet. He said, we need to look at this and find a solution. Mm -hmm. And if you take a, 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 a pure ethical stance to say, um, we, we, the question cannot uh, be posed, you would lose. You have to understand that you are in politics, and politics is murky business. The and role it, of the Attorney General is to uphold the rule of law, and that's what she did. Absolutely, but not to uphold it unconsciously. She knew exactly what she was doing. Well, then she is an idiot. Then she is, I, I have even less respect for her. If she upholds the rule of law saying, to what and, our whole society and, is based on. And the on. price is that we will lose our democracy in Canada, then no, she's, she's an idiot. She's maintaining our democracy. She won't maintain it if the conservatives come in. No, it's democracy. It's not that she's destroying it. It's sad. <laughs> I don't want the conservatives in either. So, so you would maintain your principle and Trudeau lied about this whole thing. But you lose, you lose the possibility of doing everything that a humanitarian society should do. I don't, ethical know, if questions, I don't know if it's black and white like ethical that. Ethical questions are not black and white, which is what she should have understood. Mm. Ethical questions imply all the consequences. That you're either honest or you're not honest. No. That's black and white. And yeah, I it is. Agree. It is I black and agree. white. Honesty has shades. If you say that uh, every uh, murderer should be executed in a society that has the death penalty, you are putting all the cases together in, in a situation where you have uh, you could be defending something, you could be... There are circumstances that say constantly, there but for the grace of God go I. You have to adapt your it's not, it's ethical not about concerns. Honesty, though. 
you're 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 not you're you're confusing honesty with following regulations. Uh, she just told the truth. That's all. No, she didn't tell the truth. That's it. She didn't tell the truth. She didn't say the prime minister simply asked me whether we could consider the question. She said interference and so on. Well, that's what happened. But it wasn't. Okay, well, let's... No. Okay, but let's use The consequences. Uh, if she had read any literature, she would have understood that if you take the position of saying, I will not give an inch, you lose everything. And mm. that's not how life happens. You can go to your... That's what was so refreshing about it for me. Ah, uh, well. But... Well, then... She will be celebrated in the grave with uh, hundreds of thousands of Canadians who will lose all the, uh, the stature that Justin Trudeau gave them. Because with the Conservative government there will be none of that and we will lose everything that was acquired by the Liberals. Trudeau's done nothing on uh, on the environment. He's he's put up a good show, but, but the, it's all hot air. The same was said about Obama. You know, uh, sure, you know, he didn't do four hundred things, and now we have Trump. So you can say Justin Trudeau didn't do this and didn't fold his napkin correctly, and so on. He lied, and he lied, and now we have what will come, and yeah. uh, we will deserve it. Well, I'm going to vote green, and I'll just I'll hope that they, they win the election. That's okay. a bit idealistic, but okay. that's where I'm going. Okay, okay. Well, you know, I wish, I wish <laughs> you luck. I wish you luck. But uh, having, having worked for almost three years inside the Argentinian government, I can tell you, I started off like that. I, I started off saying with the corruption of the Cristina government before, mm. I will follow every rule, I will not break a single uh, rule and so on. Well, had I done that, I realized very soon that uh, the library would have folded and I would have had the hand over my chest and saying, I behaved impeccably, we have lost the library, we have lost a thousand jobs, we have lost all this, but my conscience, conscience is clean. You talk about the notion of, uh, just, just specific to our conversation, about what is fair and unfair, mm -hmm. and where better is this expressed and recorded mm -hmm. than in a national library? Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, the, li the library would give you the documents that would help you negotiate and, and find your path in what is not black and white, um, no question, no important question that presents itself is black and white. At, at Politics point, is pragmatic, but the, the but point life is... life is pragmatic. If, if you have, you're against uh, killing someone... I'm for telling the truth. Okay. <laughs> I, I am also for telling the truth, and the library is the place that tells the truth. It gives evidence. You say that it's a storehouse of every kind of manifestation of justice. Quite. A catalogue of examples of just and unjust acts. Quite. So this is where Judy uh, Wilson-Raybould's act will be 
recorded in the library. Absolutely, absolutely. And the downfall of the democratic society will be recorded in the chapter following. The down. Well, I, I don't think the conservative government's going to hasten the downfall of democracy oh, in I Canada. Think it will. I, I, I think that's a bit uh, I, let, catastrophizing. I, yeah, yeah, well, I'm, but at, at my age, I'm, I, I'm inclined to see catastrophe everywhere, but I mm. hope you're right. The library should be an instrument to guide readers in their civic roles. Absolutely. And to promote the importance of reading. Look, I'm writing a biography of Maimonides now. And a question that comes up very early in Maimonides' career is when he is in the extremist Almohad society that wants everyone to convert to Islam or uh, leave, uh, if not, then not be killed. And, and Maimonides says, look, if your life depends on saying that you convert and mumbling a few prayers and in your heart you keep uh, the faith in which you believe in, do it. Your life is more important than upholding publicly what is considered by you and your fellows to be the truth. I think that it makes absolute sense not Otherwise, it's a kind of moral suicide that benefits no one mm -hmm. except the image that you have of yourself. And even that will not last for long because you will have your head chopped off. Okay, I'm going to use your own <laughs> words against you just winding down please, here. Please, please. That's what books do. That's why they answer back. The, this is your own book. You're saying that a national library is there to record the imagining of better worlds yes. in the face of yes. greed and corruption. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm big with that, but it doesn't sound like well, you absolutely. are. Well, absolutely. No, but absolutely. To combat greed and corruption, which would come with a conservative government... It's I, already here, uh, it, it, Alberto. It, it's never not there. It's, not, it, it's a question of degrees. Mm -hmm. That's where we have to think in terms of uh, tension between the, the white and black because the, you will never have that perfect uh, society of absolute honesty. It has never happened since it's something the world we, we, want, we want to work toward, though. We, we want to work towards it, but we want to work towards it not eliminating it at the same time. Slowly. <laughs> Maybe she was too abrupt. Slowly or gradually or, or what have you, but with intelligence to say, this is a straight road that I want to take, and there is a, a tree uh, on the road. If I go straight, I'll crash into it, so I have to make a detour. I know where I want to go, I know how I want to get there, but I have to realize that there are obstacles in the way, and if I don't take them into consideration, I will crash, which is what she did. So you're talking about making compromises. I'm talking about making compromises, yes, but not every compromise. Because let's go back to the question. What Trudeau said was we have to find a way, we have to talk about this. 
He no, no, say. he kept pressuring her to break the rules. No, is what no, he did. No, yes, that's he not did. true. That's not true. That's I have exactly what he did. I have the transcripts. I have what she said. He told her, and using her words, you will see she, that she never says that he told her, let's forgive these, uh, this company, let's not uh, find them. He said, let's talk about it. He let's said she, it. she objected to his political interference, and she made it clear early on that he was interfering politically in this decision which was against the rules. Let's go to the words that he used, because you can say that you politically interfere, but you have to go to the evidence that the library would show in the transcript of the conversation. And you can see there that all he is asking is not for an immediate decision based on the law, as you suggest, but simply let's discuss it. Look. These things appear all the time when uh, somebody uh, kills a, a, a person who is in great suffering with that person's consent to end that person's life. The law says you can't put the, an end to the life of anyone. But you have to discuss it if that person is your beloved wife who is in agony and has been in agony for years do you say, oh, I'm not allowed to kill and let her suffer? So the, the, the cases are many. I'm taking it into mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. sentimental. But all I would have wanted her to say is, Prime Minister, let's sit down and talk about this. Or I will have a committee to consider this. Or I will discuss it in some way that uh, realizing that this will cause a problem. So you can't say, I will take this decision and not see the consequences, because very well, the company is fine, and the company says, now we leave Quebec. What do you do with those 10,000, I don't know, they would, if, was if there were other contracts, as the CEO of that company said, the mm -hmm. employees would find work with these other companies that got well, the contract. That, that's all that needs to be put on the table. That's all that needs to be discussed. But it wasn't. She shut the door. She said, I won't discuss it. You are interfering. I'll make this public. No, it wasn't just that. It, was, it wasn't just down. him. It was 11 people that were bugging her for months. That's not how politics work. It's no, that's what's so refreshing politics. about this for me, anyway. Oh, okay. And uh, and it's an ideal, and I admire her for it. Okay, all right. But but, but we, as you say, we may be stuck with uh, with the Tories, and I sure as hell don't want that. Well, they 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 have to thank her for that because that's what essentially what will bring this government down. And look what they did to the, the National... Uh, the National Library is a bit of a disgrace in Canada right now. Why? Just the, the, the fact that they don't uh, acquire the papers of important Canadian writers. When they haven't for years and years and years. Yes, it's... Uh, okay, that, that, that's a completely different question. Yeah. The, 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 but, I mean, the, the thing the is, problem. the Tories would be less... 
open to, f to increasing funding to the of National course, Library course, than the Liberals. Of course, right? but then it's a, it's a problem of when um, the National Library of Canada was joined with the Archives of the National Archives of Canada, lots of bureaucratic questions and... Under Sheila Copps. So, yeah. There are no saints here, and even among the saints, there are not many that I would choose. So it's, it's complicated, and righteousness is never the right way, because it doesn't serve justice, it serves yourself. Don't, anyway. like, to, don't like to leave it on that. <laughs> don't like to leave okay. it on that. Let's leave it on, Let's leave it on something... Something about, <laughs> about books. <laughs> if we go to books, and I always go to books, you can see how in books these subjects are dealt with. There like, will be some interesting books written about this fiction and nonfiction. For yeah, sure. I, I, I'm, I'm talking about fiction, which um, in some senses is, is, is richer uh, in these areas. Then non-fiction. Have you read a novel by Ian McEwan called The Children's Act? In that novel, the moral dilemma is a judge has to decide whether a 17-year-old boy should have, uh, be forced to have a blood transfusion. His parents are um, Seventh-day Adventists, and the boy is a believer in that, and he doesn't want the transfusion. Without the transfusion, he will die. So the judge has to decide, he's almost an adult, but not quite, and she decides that he will have the transfusion. So the consequences of that are in, in the novel, and you see that it doesn't work out perfectly just mm. because she says, well, we have to save this life. Fiction shows you up to what point these moral dilemmas are complex, and if you choose to go the way of absolute justice and absolute truth, you don't succeed in absolute justice and absolute truth. Yeah. This, is what, this is what Don Quixote finds out. Um, Don Quixote, in his first adventure, he sees a young boy tied to a tree and his master uh, whipping him. And he gets him to stop and... Uh, the master doesn't want to pay the boy, which is why he's whipping him. And uh, he makes him promise that under the law of chivalry, he will pay him and let him go free. And the boy, <laughs> knowing perfectly well that that won't happen, he says, oh, please don't, you know. <laughs> and so when Don Quixote meets the boy long after um, with Sancho, the boy now grown says, please, if you find me in trouble again. Please don't do anything. Please don't do anything. Cervantes doesn't solve it for you. He tells you Don Quixote has an idea of perfect justice which comes from novels of chivalry. He has to do this. He's noble. He's noble, he's ethical, he has, uh, uh, he says many times, he talks about the sense of justice. But at the same time, Cervantes shows you that... He's a laughingstock. Well, that, that is not as important, in, in, in my view, the fact that what he gratifies, what Don Quixote gratifies, is his private sense of justice, which is the ethics of chivalry. But the consequences of that are 
nefarious for, for the person that he helps. This is a dilemma that we face every day. We face it with tiny things, we face it with huge things like the Minister of Justice had yeah. to face. And we have to go beyond the immediate act of justice, the immediate ethical act, and say what are the consequences. Mm -hmm. And so if the result is that I come out of this saying, what a great guy I am, I have acted uh, according to my principles. But she's not the only person that thinks that. I think that too. Okay. And a lot of people think that. Okay, sure, sure. And what do you think about the consequences? Yeah. Let me ask you, In let's have this conversation in three years' time mm -hmm. and see what the conservative government has done and what is the position of native people in that government and how many women and how many minorities are represented as a consequence of this. Yeah. So this is an act of justice, it's fine, and these are the consequences. And let's see. Uh, um, well, and that's what I, fiction I does too, doesn't it? I mean, you could you could write a novel. It's a test run. You can sure. see in fiction. Sure. I mean, that's what storytelling sure. is about: is sort of testing all sorts of possibilities. Absolutely. And and and, and curiously, I think of this now: um, the only fiction that has immediate good actions result in uh, Positive. A, a better world are these little moralistic tracks of the Victorian times that nobody believes in and are not good literature. Um, <laughs> why is that? Because the reader doesn't feel they are true. Mm. Look what happens to Cordelia too. <laughs> Look what happens to Cordelia. Look what, what happens to Dorothea in, in Middlemarch. Yeah. Look what happens to these wonderful characters that mm. do the right thing. Well, Hamlet do, says this, that it's the greatest reason to um, do the right thing for the wrong reason. Mm. Um, mm. So I think that literature is a guide there as not as to what to do, but how complex it is to do what you think is right. I'll just finally <laughs> give you how you end your book. Okay. In the end is my beginning. That's what uh, what that's what Mary, Mary Queen of Scots yeah. said, and that's the motto for your library. Can you uh, just finally expand on that a bit? As fiction tells us that at the end of the book is the beginning of another book. It's mm, you start as a reader to reflect on what you have read and you don't need to go to circular books like Finnegan's Wake to, um, to do this. You can have uh, Huckleberry Finn and at the end you begin it again with another understanding of the world. I feel the same thing with my library. My library is now in boxes here stored in, in uh, the storage room that my publisher um, gave me for, for free. But a new life begins for, has begun for these books. In my mind, I write through them, I, I, I make them live again. Um, and they need a home. 
They need they, a new they, home. They need a new home if we find a new home for the books that would be terrific and if they we don't it will not be the first library that is not in its place. At some point something will happen to it, but whether I will live to see it, I don't know. Well, thanks very much for... Okay. Uh, I will send you an essay I wrote. I was asked to give the first Hrant Drink um, lecture in Turkey about the murdered Armenian journalist and I wrote a little essay on the idea of justice and the consequences of speaking out. Mm. I think that might be useful in, in, mm -hmm. in terms of our discussion because I don't want you to think that I'm against standing up for what you believe in. All I'm saying is that you have to stand up but know what will fall as you stand up. Yeah. I just want Canada to stand as an example to the world, because if we don't, no one will. But, okay, but of course, but, um, look, when I, when I lived in Canada, I became Canadian because that's what I admired. Mm -hmm. I, I, I admired the possibility that as a private citizen of being able to sit on a school board or to sit in a debate, and this was not just show, mm -hmm. things happened. Yeah, you could make a difference. You could make a difference, and that was amazing for me, coming from all these other different countries where the only way to make a difference was to throw a stone. I uh, wrote for a number of publications. I wrote for many years for Saturday Night. Saturday Night, uh, under Fulford, was largely a, a liberal uh, paper uh, in, in in the not in the political sense of the word in the sense that people could give their opinions very freely mm. and um, Fulford decided to open it up to extreme right wing views like those of David Frum. Mm -hmm. Not only did the paper change completely uh, the magazine. But it didn't create an open forum. It began adapting itself to those right-wing points of view because the paradoxes and the great dilemma is if you are a liberal humanitarian, again, not in the political sense, in the, in the sense of respecting other people's opinions and so on, you're open. You say, okay, you are a neo-Nazi, uh, this is an open forum, you can stand up and speak and give you... But as soon as that shifts into the other camp, the other camp doesn't have those rules. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you, you can't do that. Mm. You won't have that freedom. You all um, these aspects will be curtailed. Mm. And this is what you have to understand in a political arena. Obviously, you want Canada to stand as an example where justice is justice, where everything is open, where minorities are respected. Well, I, I have sung the praises of Canada so many times that I feel that I, I'm sort of on a roll when I start uh, with this. but. Just to say that I am perfectly aware of this, but you have to be aware in what field 
in what world you are acting. And if not, you become criminally naive. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, but that is the reality. And by saying, you know, you, 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 you stand by your principles and you won't be budged, you, you affect not only yourself, that's fine, you can turn yourself into a martyr and say, okay, shoot me, I will, not, I will turn the other cheek. But it affects tons of people who will lose their privileges because of your standing up for justice. It, it's, it's a paradox that's apparent every day, every day. I'll say to you that. I think she's an example to young Canadians. I do, but... She could have managed it more intelligently. That's the only thing I'm saying. Yeah, I think she could have been more pragmatic. Yeah, not to stand back, but to be more intelligent, to say, okay, I have to, I have to stand up for my principles, but I have to do it in a way that won't bring the building down. Yeah, that keeps me in power. She's, she's lost absolutely, power. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, she, uh, maybe she, she just figured that it, there wasn't a way to compromise. I don't know. She's Samson does that when uh, he kills the Philistines. Sure, he brings the temple down, but he kills himself at mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. Is suicide worth every situation of justice and justice, is it? Maybe it is to her. Maybe but it is to her. Yeah. Then she carries on her back responsibility for the lo loss that so many people will endure. Yeah. And if she is willing to accept that. In the news it was yesterday that family burned the indigenous family simply because the fire engine wasn't working in that far off reserve. She could have made a difference by saying, this is an act of injustice, we have to change it, the responsibility is here and there and so on. She is gone and nobody would say that. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry to become Not so Not at vehement. all, no. Um, I, I've been talking to Alberto Manguel. The book is uh, Packing My Library, published by Yale University Press. Uh, thanks so much again for your telling Thank your you. truth. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.